0: For many people today, healthcare feels like we're behind enemy lines. The system is geared to take care of us, but why do we feel like we're in it alone? Everyday stories are a powerful way to shine light on the gaps that make it feel this way. I'd like to welcome you to Everyone Hates Healthcare, where we bring you real people's healthcare stories, unfiltered. And now your host, Michael Swartz. Hey, everybody. Michael Swartz here, and I want to welcome you back to the show. Today, we have Burgess Harrison. Burgess is the executive director of the National Minority Health Association, an organization focused on eliminating the healthcare disparity gap experienced by minorities. With more than 25 years of home health and telehealth technology experience, he is a pioneer in electronic visit verification and possesses a unique understanding of the market and issues, patients and providers face. Burgess has developed innovative and forward thinking programs for nonprofits as he served on the boards of the American Red Cross of South Central Connecticut and the Shoreline Foundation. He guided the National Minority Health Association in its successful $11.1 million grant with HRSA to increase vaccinations in underserved communities, developed the concept of the Association's Operation Healthy You, and drove advocacy for more minority representation in clinical trial recruitment. Burgess, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start off and tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you're doing.
1: Thank you for the intro. I've been involved in health technology for a number of years. As you indicated, myself and partners were pioneers in what's called electronic visit verification. Back in the day, home health workers would go into the home, deliver services, and then they'd put a piece of paper in front of the client and say, sign this, this is my hours. And basically, that homebound patient would sign anything because that home care worker was their lifeline to the outside world. But as I'm sure you can see, that process was and is fraught with potential fraud and abuse. We developed a system to have people check in and check out. We were early pioneers in that. After over 25 years or so, it finally became mandated throughout the country, which was our goal, but we were way early in the process. In between there, I've done stints at American Telecare, which was a pioneer in telehealth. The pandemic has certainly Trying to focus on the importance and value of telehealth when all of the like elective procedures and you know, everyone was shut in and had to stay home. But, you know, how do you continue healthcare? Well, telehealth was readily available. So you have a lot of experience there. And then was partners in a payroll software billing HR company for the home health industry. So a lot of my healthcare background, I was also an adjunct professor of business and marketing at the New York College of Technology. And I did a number of other things, spent time in the telecommunications field with successor, you know, ATT and people like that, Frontier Communications. So I'm kind of bring all that together to the National Minority Health Association and your focus on, as you had talked about, health equity. And health equity, very different than health equality. You've got to have equity before you can have equality. If you can picture in your mind a graphic of an apple tree and some of the apples on the left side are six feet high, and some of the apples on the right side are 10 feet high, you want to give the people picking apples on the six foot side a six foot ladder and the people on the right side a 10 foot ladder. That's equity, giving people what they need at the time they need it in order to get the best outcome for them. Equality would give everybody either six foot or 10 foot ladders, and either you're under-resourcing or over-resourcing. So we're about health equity and trying to raise the awareness of what it is and then develop strategies in order to be able to help bring it about, which would help impact the disparity and that healthcare gap that exists. Because when you look down, we don't need to get into stats. The bottom line is that in pretty much every category, minority communities have either a worse outcome or fare more poorly than non-minority counterparts. And that needs to change. And we need to have a change in America or the world where your zip code is not the determinant of what of your life expectancy or the kind of healthcare that you get. And unfortunately, that really is the way that it is. Your zip code determines oftentimes whether you will live or die. So, with that,
0: that and the mission that you have is absolutely incredible. What do you think is driving that zip code disparity? How as the executive director of this association Where do you see driving this problem?
1: Well, look, it's not one thing we got here after hundreds of years. So and it's not something that's going to change when you snap your fingers, but you have to start doing something somewhere. So one of the things that we're doing, we're really trying to be as pragmatic as possible and say to one, the business world and not just healthcare companies, but the business world in general, that health equity is important for their employees. They need to have a workforce in order to be able to deliver the best service or products that they're selling. How are you going to do that well health equity as a country be become more one of a rainbow of colors your employees are going to mirror that and if segments of your employees do not have access to the best health care and aren't being set up in a position to get the best outcome for them. Well, that's a problem. Then you translate that same thought and message to customers. If a company does not think about or care about the health of the people who buy their products, at some point in time they will not have people or a good chunk of those people will not be available or able to buy and utilize their products. So this is of importance to everybody to get on board and say, okay, what can we do from where we sit? So one of the things that we're espousing is a concept called patient activation measure. We affectionately call it PAM patient activation measure looks at the activation of a person in order to achieve the best outcome for them. And that's what's important. Outcomes relate to the person because you and I, we may have the same disease, but our ability to whatever outcome we're going to get is going to be very different based on where we live, how we operate in our daily lives, our habits, and how activated we are, as well as income and other things. So we're about how do you get the best outcome for You. So patient activation measure, it's a 10-question survey, gives you a score of one, two, three, or four. And if you're a four, you're highly activated, which says that you recognize that you as an individual are responsible for achieving your best outcome. Obviously, in concert with your healthcare professional and the healthcare system, but you know that you have an important role in making your best outcome happen. If you're a one, you believe that the healthcare system's responsible for you. So you can't talk to those two people the same. You can't give a stack of information about someone's healthcare to a level one that you would give to a level four. The level four person is going to read everything and do all the things and can be very compliant Whereas a level one, you're gonna to need to hold their hand, possibly. So, if you know that, you're gonna to talk to those people differently, and they're gonna both, they're gonna have different pathways to get their best outcome. And the healthcare system needs to understand that. Now, over in the UK, it is widely utilized and accepted here in the states not so much and this is a protocol that has 600 peer-reviewed studies so this isn't Uh burgess harrison and has an idea this is something that's been out there for over 20 years and again 600 peer-reviewed studies that show that pam when utilized within the healthcare arena is able to get the individual the best outcome for them, and also at a lower cost. And again, why it's not utilized here more, we don't know, but we want to certainly get it utilized more in minority communities and with all communities because it's just a good thing.
0: I think when you think of patient activation, I think it is important to look at that. Do you have any idea of what percent America as a whole is activated because we're just very reactive as a country and our healthcare system is incredibly confusing, incredibly expensive for a lot of people and they just disengage. Do you have any idea what that activation rate is?
1: I don't have that number I would you know, hold a gun to my head and take a stab. I think just like anything else, a bell curve, you've got the 20% fours at the top, you've got the 20% at the bottom, and most people are twos and threes in the middle. And so the goal would be to move everybody up. I remember years ago, my brother worked for UPS and human resources. And their approach was if you were a supervisor and you had 10 drivers that work for you, you focused on your lowest performing driver, and you got that driver to move up from 10 to nine, now your number nine is going to fall down to number 10 and you keep working on that lowest performer the entire productivity of your team increases so that would be some of the same thinking here if we can get level ones to move up to level two that alone is going to have a significant impact on the healthcare system and another tidbit of information and i don't have the data right at hand on this but we do know that there's some correlation between how activated you are as a patient and your credit worthiness, meaning if you're a highly activated person, you have a higher level of credit worthiness because PAM is forward-looking, whereas your credit score looks over your past history. And your past history, there may be a lot of things that you didn't have any control over. When the economy tanked and everybody got laid off and it impacted what you were able to pay, well, you didn't have any control over that. It it wasn't like your fault. You didn't make a conscious decision to lower your credit score through your actions of what you could pay or not pay. So whereas a PAM looks at how you really conduct yourself and the kind of things that you can or will do or have a propensity to, to do. Your doctor says that you have to take XYZ prescription, three pills a day, you know, twice a day. And if you're activated, you're going to do that. You're going to feel it's your responsibility to do that. And you're going to do that kind of going forward. Your credit score, it just says, here's what you did, but it doesn't really say that you really have a propensity to do that.
0: My jaw is to the floor right now that there's correlation in that. It's just unbelievable. How does staying healthy and well, like what about... So, I might be an activated patient, but can I increase my activation by staying active, eating healthy? Like, what is this well, idea kind of patient activation? How do you be activated? How do you be your own advocate in healthcare?
1: Yeah, you're kind of mixing metaphors a little bit in the sense of can you eat more healthily and so on and be more activated? Think of activation as. It's a little bit of a state of mind. Someone had mentioned to me that if you are a refugee from Syria that went from Syria and you somehow got yourself to Europe with the clothes on your back, maybe you've got a backpack with all of your worldly belongings, that's a pretty activated person to just have decided to do that, to flee a war-torn country and get to an area that's safe, and then all the things you had to do in between in order to make that happen. So, I would call it a little bit of a state of mind, but that doesn't mean that you can't move from a one to a two, a two to a three, and a three to a four. There are things that you can do in order to begin to change your mindset and change your behavior. I'm not suggesting that it's easy. I'm not suggesting that you can snap your fingers and make it happen, but it is something that can happen But even the fact of knowing that somebody is a one, a two, a three or a four, just knowing that is helpful for them getting their best outcome. Because if you're a level one and people treat you like you're a level four, let's say your outcome is, I don't know, 40 percent of whatever it is. I'm just taking a percentage. But you're treated like a level four. You may get frustrated and not do anything. And instead of getting to the 40 percent outcome that you could get as a level one, you might only get to 20 percent.
0: It seems so all of it's connected. Like I'm thinking here, if I don't go to the doctor, if I'm not staying on top of my health, how do I get treated like a, some sort of level if I'm not even interacting? Like, how do we get people just being involved in their health, taking that first step and not letting it get to the point? Like, and I think what you're doing and trying to bring in companies and organizations to fuel this because it is an American problem. But how do you drive that motivation? How do you drive people just starting
1: to be empowered? You know, a $64,000 question. So it's a lot of things. And I think I mentioned in the beginning talking about companies. I think that companies, large companies in particular, can play a big role. Taking PAM, for example, large companies could go to their insurers. It's open enrollment season that's starting, I think, like next week. They could go to all their insurers and say, hey, you know what? We want you to to get a PAM score for all of our employees as a starting point. Now, there's a whole lot of things that have to happen after that. To having a PAM score in and of itself means nothing. Then you have to have the healthcare system know what somebody's PAM score is, and begin to interact and relate to them based on that PAM score using a particular pathway. But you gotta start somewhere. And so if corporations take the bull by the horn and start asking, because they in a sense are the payers because they're paying whatever, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of insurance premium. So in one sense, they're the payers. They have a lot of clout. So if they start asking for these things, let alone not just asking, but demanding these things, then the payers, insurers will start doing it. And then when they start doing it, it's going to flow down the chain to the healthcare system, doctors, hospitals, and clinics, and so on. So to me, I think that's where it starts. And again, this is being utilized over in the UK. And it's easier there because they have a centralized healthcare system and single payer system where we don't have that here. So here, we've got to go at it from a different perspective. And that would be my Recommendation, suggestion, idea, whatever you want to call it, in order to be able to have a major impact on the healthcare system. Everybody's looking for what are those silver bullets to control costs, reduce costs, get better outcomes, provide better healthcare. And PAM is one of those things that really can be done. People don't have to have smartphones in order to be able to utilize this. So there's not like a technology or anything like that. It's not highly going to cost a lot, although. For the healthcare system to change, there will be internal infrastructure costs that would take place. But the savings that would come out of this 5, 10, 15% type savings, when you're talking about trillion dollar markets, is huge.
0: Yeah, that is a lot of savings for our country, is massive for people, for payers. I mean, think of how much money spent. Of the government on Medicare, so any sort of savings. So tell us a little bit about how did you end up becoming executive director of the association? What led you to that point of driving this incredible mission and really trying to make real change in today's society?
1: Well, I could tell you it was, I drew a short straw, but <laughs> reality... <laughs> In all seriousness, I partnered with a Dr. Dalton, who is the CEO of a company called Univec, and he's a pharmacist, and it's one of the largest Black-owned businesses in the country. And he and I met, and he had started the NMHA, National Minority Health Association, 33 years ago. So he was in need of an executive director, and I had sold my part in a company and was looking for something new and wanted to utilize my health experience. And if I can go back into my background, the other part of it and why it intrigued me was poor families. And I was raised by a single mother and poor families that have to meet the daily needs. You go through and you say there's housing, got to keep a roof over your head. There's food. You got to eat something in order to survive. Then there's your job and transportation to and from your job and healthcare is in there. But as you kind of go through and you have limited funds, healthcare is down the list, even though it's important. It's like, gee, I got these other things that come in front of that. So for me in second grade, I was going to fail the second grade. And most people don't typically <laughs> almost fail the second grade and didn't know why. So finally, somebody, and I'm not sure who, finally, somebody identified that I had low vision and they moved my desk from the front row between the front row and the blackboard. And so that's how I spent my second grade. But that was the thing that saved me. And so it gives me a unique perspective on the healthcare system that if you don't have people who may be looking out for you, or you don't have access to good healthcare to be able to catch things early on, I, you know, I have no idea where I would be today. Well, I certainly wouldn't be talking to you if somebody hadn't caught that and changed the trajectory of my educational career when I was seven years old. It's unbelievable that for them to catch
0: it, like what drove them? I'm interested in that person because they actually cared. They took the time and not just said, oh, look, he just doesn't care
1: about school. The teacher that I had in the second grade and brought it to the attention of the nurses in the school and so on. And so they were able to find, you know, get me the help that I needed. And they were able to get me low vision aids. I got glasses, which I didn't have before low vision aids i got a large type dictionary which was you know seven i carried back and forth to school it was half my size i think it was huge then i got way before the audibles i would get these records with books so they were called talking books so those were the things that i utilized and then my glasses and the bifocals and just being closer to the board Were it was it still wasn't easy but at least gave me a fighting chance
0: So that experience really helps to drive in. It's all about having a perspective. So you know what people have been through. Do you think technology can help in today's world? Like we talk about affordability. We talk about access. We talk about being able to Be that person that can really take the time to understand and provide the best care. Like, do you see opportunity with virtual? You were in telehealth way
1: before. Well, absolutely. But I think that we have to be careful. Telehealth is certainly a vital tool, an important tool, but it's not a panacea. You know, stop and think about it. A physician prior to being involved, we'll say in telehealth was doing whatever number X number of patient interactions a day. Now, with telehealth, there's an expectation that they're going to do X plus whatever interactions, which is good. But there's a limit. Physicians are people, too. And so we have to be careful of that balance. Plus, the other thing with telehealth is there's something to be said about interpersonal contact. I went to, gosh, I hadn't put a suit on in a year and a half. And I I went to a conference a week ago and everyone kept talking about what a joy it was just to be able to interact with live people face-to-face. And so in a healthcare setting, when you talk to your doctor, the first thing he or she says, you know, how are you feeling? Where does it hurt? You know, they kind of talk through a few things, but they can really see you as you're answering those things and they can touch you or whatever else they're going to do. You kind of lose some of that with telehealth. So believe me, I'm a telehealth advocate. I just think we have to be careful that we don't just all of a sudden, you know, we're a country that, We kind of swing one way and build full force and I realize, oh, that's not totally the answer. It's just like during the pandemic, we've all gone to whether it's Chime or Zoom or Teams or whatever video conferencing, WebEx, GoToMeeting. But you find that there's a good and bad to that. You can continue to get things done, but there are some tradeoffs to it. And so if you're doing training, for example, and anyone will tell you that, how do you keep people engaged when you're in a room with them? You can see whether you can really see their eyes and interact because they used to be an adjunct professor. When you're doing it via Zoom, sure, you can head to gallery mode or whatever, but you really can't see unless somebody does something drastic that they're really engaged. So, again, I'm not poo-pooing any of these things. They all serve a role. They've been very helpful. We just have to be careful that we don't all of a sudden rush and say, "Okay, let's just do everything by telehealth. Telehealth
0: will never be a replacement. But if we think back to what you were talking about, this idea of patient activation and personalization, I think there is something to be said about whether it's telehealth whether it's just a virtual guide like somebody there to help you navigate i mean help you Figure out what's right for you. My healthcare, I'm sure, is totally different than your healthcare journey, which is totally different than probably my father's healthcare journey. Correct. And that's the tough part with healthcare.
1: It's how do you know where to go, what to do? Well, what you're bringing up too is circling back to health equity. It's important that, in, in order to bring it about and to bridge the healthcare gap that exists, it's recognizing that everybody is different for a whole host of reasons. Everyone is different, okay, just because we're different people. But then you have to look and say, OK, there are other views of being different. There are differences between men and women, for example. There are differences in whether people are from one part of the country to another. I'm here in Minnesota. You know, Minnesotans, you know, can deal with the cold weather better. Well, I'm in Florida. Arizona. I can't. Right. Exactly. But I'm just trying to bring out that there are differences. You need to recognize those things. And when you recognize those. Okay, what do you do about that? Louisiana, for example, New Orleans, a big diabetes population. What may be impacting that? How do you deal with that? We wanted to raise the conversation about health equity. There was a doctor that died, Dr. Moore, out of Pennsylvania, I believe. Unfortunately, she died, a black doctor, and she had COVID. The issue that arose out of that is she was telling her care team things about what she believed were impacting her or her case or her situation, and they really didn't listen to her. And, you know, the feeling is that those were impacted. The reason why she died, and I understand the hospital administrator's view of it, was that she intimidated her care team. Well, okay, so here you have somebody who's highly educated. She was a doctor and had means, and she still died because she supposedly intimidated the care team. Now, you have people who are high net worth, who probably don't treat people very well. And I'm not saying she didn't treat people well. She was just advocating for her best health care. But you have people who are of significant means that oftentimes are characterized as, you know, not being really very nice to people, but they still get good health care. So what's the problem? Somebody shouldn't die because they know something about health care. They're trying to be take an active role within in their health care. And that's viewed as being intimidating to the care team that's just wrong. And that's just one tiny piece of the iceberg that we're dealing with as we're trying to address health inequities in America. There has been a feeling, for example, that black people have a higher tolerance to pain. And so if people believe that, then you're not necessarily asking the patient where their pain tolerance is. You're making an assumption about it, which may or may not be correct. And that's just one example.
0: For listeners, what would your advice be? Because look, we can't rely on the government or things to move, but what's the first step that people can take just making sure that they're staying on top of their own health? And I think this idea of it's so personal, it's my situation is totally different than everybody else's. What would your advice be to take that first step, where can they go?
1: Who can they go to? Maybe they don't have that care team. You know, you bring up a good point. One of the other things that's one of the many things that's taking place in the healthcare system is whether it lack of uh, primary care personnel within the healthcare system. That's like your entree into the healthcare system. Yeah. And doctors are not choosing primary care as their specialty or family care. So what are we going to do about that? So you can't all of a sudden manufacture more doctors. So one way to address that is the use of physician assistants and nurse practitioners, because they do a lot of the work anyway. They do a lot of the heavy lifting anyway. So that's something. It can be a little controversial because there's always a little, whether it's politics or whatever in the healthcare system, but clearly that could be a solution. You can get to be a nurse practitioner and a PA faster than being a doctor. And maybe you do, and don't hold me to this percentage, maybe you do half of the things that the doctor does. So that would be one way of uh, Deploying more people into the healthcare system to provide that primary care role because you need someone looking at the individual holistically versus just that particular specialty where the person may be experiencing an issue at the time. So that certainly would be a help. Obviously, people need to eat better and so on, but. That brings into focus food deserts. You have food deserts in big cities where there's only convenience stores where you're able to go to and not full-fledged supermarkets. That has an impact because if you're going to more of a convenience store, they're not going to have the array of fresh fruits and vegetables that one needs in their diet to give you a fighting chance to be as healthy as you can be. As just an example, what do we do about that? Not an easy answer, but something that needs to be Addressed. So those are just a couple things that we need to think about as we're on this health equity journey. We hope that the journey's not too long, but it clearly is a journey. We're going to have to take one step after another, after another. We're going to have to get as many people on board, individuals, organizations, governments, companies, healthcare organizations, hospitals, doctors. We're going to have to get everybody on board for this journey and all pulling in the same direction
0: no question. And just you going through all these different things, everything's so connected. Like the food you eat, you staying active relates to your health. You having, going to the doctor, staying on top of your behavioral health, your dental health, all these things. So it's tough to say like any one thing, which is why what you're saying and what you're doing is so powerful because it's going to be, a team effort. It's no one company, no one person, no one organization is gonna be able to really figure this out. And that includes the individual who's at the center of it. Correct. They need to take a step as well, but people around them need to step and help them make it across wherever they need to get to.
1: One of the things as we're looking at health policy and take the vaccines that have come out when they were developing the plan, rolling out the COVID vaccines last year, Or in the beginning of the year, no one really kind of thought about some of the we'll call unintended consequences. So, you know, you set up these vaccination sites and maybe they operate from eight to five. Well, the what are now known as the essential workers, they couldn't do that because they were working, providing the infrastructure and support services necessary for just the country to keep operating. So what were they going to do? You had when you started to deliver vaccines to older people in assisted living and so on, well, you're not going to find as many people there because one, they can't afford it. And so you're going to miss people. So policymakers need to step back. And we need to take a 360 approach pretty much to every single policy that we implement to be sure that we're getting fair and accurate representation. There's an equitable access to whatever it is that we're trying to implement. And we're going to have to think about things. And then you're going to need to involve people from the community to be able to, once you have a sort of a draft, To react to say, well, you're missing this or this is going to be something that is going to have a negative impact. Again, you take an essential worker that's a low wage person who has to take an hour off of work to get a a vaccine or get a test. Well, that's a challenge to lose that hour. And then if they don't have transportation and they have to take a mass transportation. So now you have the cost of transportation, the extra time that it takes. It's all those small things, but things that need to be taken into account and addressed. It's all part of that lens of health equity. And these are, again, tiny pieces of the pie. There's lots of other things, things that are bigger. But these are all the things that we're trying to raise the consciousness of people to begin to focus on.
0: Now, this is a complicated and complex problem. And I just get shivers up my spine when I think of policymakers actually doing something that's going to help. I think it's more of us, companies, people, organizations like yours, the people that are in the community that really can make this change. It's tough enough to get policy without all the money in politics and everything directing it. So, true. so Burgess, How can people help? Like myself, I mean, me personally, I want to do something, but I'm sure there's many of the listeners, like what can us everyday Americans do? How can people help?
1: You know, it's funny you asked that. I was just literally right before this, I was on a webinar with a number of philanthropic organizations in the state of New York. And what I said there, because a sort of a similar question came up. And my answer was that the philanthropic organizations need to be sending people out in the community and things like that. But I advocated on their websites that they should put a line saying, how can we help so that people, organizations like ours could say, here's how you can help us. So in terms of the National Minority Health Association, one, our website is www.the nmha, the nmha.org. And if you go there, we certainly want people to join. It's very inexpensive or help sponsor our activity. We have a number of different programs. We have one on dementia that we're doing. We are also working to increase minority participation in clinical trials. We're utilizing PAM in our Operation Healthy You program. And then we have our vaccine program that we're doing with HRSA to help vaccinate folks in underserved areas in 12 states. And then we're doing other things as well relative to health equity. But certainly, we'd love people to jump on board, drop us a note. We always need financial help. Everybody needs financial help. We really are trying to utilize the support and dollars that we get to raise the awareness of health equity raise the awareness that there's a health gap, and then implement very specific programs that we think can be of help. We know that we're not going to be the only organization that's going to have the silver bullet to solve everything, but we feel very strongly that we can and will and are doing our part in order to raise the consciousness of health equity and the impact. And if we don't do anything, just like climate change, these things are going to have very serious negative consequences. So the time is now. And we need everybody to do what they can with what you have.
0: No question. Just speaking to you has opened my eyes to the complexities. And I'm going to make sure... In all the notes, any listeners that want to go to the site, join the association, get
1: involved, it'll all be in the notes. Where can people follow you, Burgess? Well, I'll send it to you so it can be in the notes. I'm on LinkedIn, so certainly uh, reach me there. And we have a Facebook and Twitter accounts. But certainly go to our website again, which is uh, thenmha.org. So T-H-E-N-M-H-A.org is probably the good starting point. Awesome. And is there
0: anything you want to leave the listeners with before we
1: uh, wrap up? The main message on health equity is people like to talk about equality, but we cannot have equality until there's equity. So you've got to give, I'll call it six foot ladders to those people that need six foot ladders and 10 foot ladders that need 10 foot ladders. And if people just keep that in their mind and say, am I in any interaction that you have in your daily life, is that what's happening? Is that other person, or entity, are they getting what they need in order to help them get the, the, in particular in healthcare, to get help them get the best outcome for them? Not what I think their outcome should be, but what is the best outcome and what they think the best outcome for them is. And if we're doing that, we're certainly going to increase and enhance and improve healthcare if we stay focused on getting the individual the best outcome for them.
0: I love it. Well, Burgess, really appreciate you coming on. Your passion is contagious. And I know myself and a lot of the listeners do what we can to get involved. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And I'll see you next week. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Everyone Hates Healthcare. If you have a healthcare story, we want to hear it. All you got to do is shoot me an email with my healthcare story in the subject line to mystory@healthkarma.org. Also, check out all the episode notes, resources, and more ways you can take control of your healthcare. All you got to do is just visit healthkarma.org slash podcast. While you're on there, help us out. Don't forget to drop us a rating, a review, and share it with all your family and friends. Can't wait to see you next week.